This is Tech News for MBAs. I'm Professor Paul Canetti. It's January 15th, 2021. Welcome to Tech News for MBAs. If you haven't yet, I recommend checking out the introductory episode just so you have some idea of what this podcast is all about. I'd always planned on launching this week, but I had no idea it would be such a crazy moment in time for the world, definitely for the US, and yes, for tech and its place in America and in the world. So without further ado, this is Tech News for MBAs. The biggest story in tech this week has to be the fallout across the internet as a result of the siege on the Capitol on January 6th. First off, the president for T-minus five days, who was just impeached again, Donald J. Trump was banned from all major social platforms, including Twitter, his main mode of public communication. Relatedly, the bizarro alt-right version of Twitter called Parler was removed by both Apple and Google from their respective app stores, which essentially wipes it off every smartphone in America. But Parler was also kicked off its underlying cloud infrastructure providers like Amazon Web Services, Twilio, and others. I should add, Trump was also kicked off a lot of his back-end tech providers, including Stripe and PayPal, the payments platforms used for his campaign donations. We also saw Twitter and other platforms ban QAnon-related accounts, forcing those users and countless others into the arms of other less discerning tools like private messaging app Telegram that reported 25 million new users registering in the last week alone. These are separate events and separate stories, but obviously intertwined. And while there is a lot to say about the attack on the Capitol in general, this is a tech news show. But by chance, here in the very first episode, we're witnessing what is really the pinnacle, the culmination of years of speculation and debate about how tech platforms should or should not moderate their users' activities, notably their speech. It's one of the fascinating ways that as the internet grows up as an industry, the issues are no longer just about cool products and innovation, but increasingly just as much about regulation, politics, and how society ultimately should function on the internet. Free speech is protected by the government, meaning the government can't prevent you from speaking freely. But that is not a requirement of the private sector. Private companies can actually do pretty much whatever they want. And in fact, private companies also have their own free speech rights, meaning the government can't tell a company what to say or not say because that violates their First Amendment rights. A lot of the conversation here centers around Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which was passed in 1996. It basically protects platforms against being liable for their users' bad behavior. And it also protects against any problems arising from platforms moderating their users' content. Section 230 has been coming up a lot in the news, um, but I actually had not really read it myself. So uh, I want to tell you what it actually says. So there's two pieces to uh, CDA 230. So the first says treatment of publisher or speaker. 
no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. What it's saying is that if you let other people publish content on the internet, you can't be treated as the publisher yourself. So I'm creating a venue for someone else to publish their content, but I can't be treated as if it was my own content and I can't be held responsible for whatever that content is. The second piece of 230 says civil liability. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of A, any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected, or B, any action taken to enable or make available to information content providers or others the technical means to restrict access to material described in paragraph A. Woo! This is saying that you can restrict access to objectionable material whether or not it would normally be allowed by the First Amendment and that you can't be held liable for anything relating to having done that. Again, this is 1996. They really had no idea what was going to become of the internet, but this was pretty prescient. Uh, and there's a heavy debate right now around striking down uh, these regulations and you know what that would do to the modern internet, but um, obviously very pertinent to what's happening right now. So, you know, if 2016 was the year that everyone decided to learn how the Electoral College worked and 2020 was the year that everyone became an epidemiologist, 2021, we're getting down and dirty with uh, the CDA and maybe a touch of the 25th Amendment. So, of course, there's been a lot of concerns raised as a result of these recent restrictions, even if they're legally protected. Um, Interestingly, I've seen people across the political spectrum complaining uh, and highly concerned about the actions of these tech companies. So the basic concerns that I've seen uh, are some version of these main points. Equal enforcement. You know, isn't all the same stuff that's on Parler also on Facebook? So why are they only taking down Parler? Even though Facebook's COO, Sheryl Sandberg, actually stated on the record this week that the attack on the Capitol was definitively not organized on Facebook, which first of all just seems false, but also how can they even make such a claim while simultaneously arguing that it's impossible for them to know what billions of people are doing on the Facebook platforms every day? Kind of confusing there. But anyway, the point is, you know, why only Parler? Um, and not others. Then another argument is, what about the implications for future precedent? In other words, if they can block Trump, well, now they could just block anyone that they're against. Um, Of course, this was always the case. These platforms can block anyone. Absolutely. That's the whole point of Section 230 um, and of their own policies. Uh, But the idea here is, you know, um, that it's setting some sort of precedent and that, and that, 
what happens now means or implies something dramatic about the future. Another point I'm seeing is questions around consistency. So similar, you know, but um, does this mean they're always going to do this? Or uh, I'm also seeing a lot of like, well, why didn't they do it earlier? There were other incitements of violence, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just an inconsistent uh, application of some sort of policy or decision making. Big one is appearances of bias. So, you know, why do they only take down a Republican president? Why do they only take down a right wing uh, social media platform? A lot of that happening. And again, you see this um, obviously more from the, the right end of the political spectrum, but people on the left are equally worried because it's the right wing today, but could be the left wing tomorrow. Um, you know, any sort of appearance of bias uh, or political leaning seems to be concerning. And I think maybe the biggest concern I'm seeing is that there's just too much power in the control of the very few. Interestingly, I think those very few would tend to agree. Last year, Mark Zuckerberg wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post that said, quote, every day we make decisions about what speech is harmful, what constitutes political advertising, and how to prevent sophisticated cyber attacks. But if we were starting from scratch, we wouldn't ask companies to make these judgments alone. I believe we need a more active role for governments and regulators. And then he added that legislation was important for, quote, protecting elections. Hmm. These are all interesting and worthwhile questions, but I wrote a piece this week summarizing my own take on all this called The Limit of Process. The argument I'm making is that process and policy is great, but as a culture, we're way too obsessed with everything having consistent rules. It's okay to have one-offs when the moment really calls for it. And again, the government, I understand that there needs to be a rule of law and it needs to be applied across the board, but private industry not everything needs to adhere to a process. I'll read you just the end of this piece that I wrote. Sometimes you just need to act. Moral imperative matters, and I see no reason to not call these moves what they actually are. Decisions reached due to a truly unique and extreme circumstance siloed from generalized policy and process. Some things in business and life should be done due to a strong sense of moral obligation rather than an obligation to mere process or consistency. Why would the latter be considered somehow more righteous than the former? If you're a tech company and you feel like you need to lawyer your way into a solution that always fits, then go for it. Quickly add a clause to your terms of service that says, if a sitting president of the United States incites a mob to break into a government building in order to vandalize, steal, and kill police officers with the intention of harming high-level elected officials, then we reserve the right to remove his or her account. The specificity should serve to illustrate the point that some things really are just one-offs. It's much clearer to just say that than trying to make it seem as if you'd been planning for this case all along. There is a limit to process, and this is it. So that's my own two cents. Uh, a great example of this idea of 
the limit of process or, you know, just doing a one-off decision is that Airbnb has canceled all reservations in the Washington, D.C. area for a period of time surrounding the inauguration. There's nothing in their policy or their terms of service that says, you know, if there is a contested election uh, and there are worries about, you know, uh, violence, we reserve the right to whatever, whatever. There's probably something general, like we reserve the right to cancel anything at any time, but they're canceling every single reservation in the Washington, D.C. area by anyone. That's something they're doing preemptively just because they think it's the right thing to do. It's the safe thing to do, and it is potentially going to prevent violence from occurring and potentially save lives. That's moral imperative. I find that these tech companies and tech commentators, everybody's just trying to tie themselves into a knot to like make it fit. Um, But some things are just outside the norm. You know, in my class, uh, we talked about this and a student compared this crackdown by social media to what it would be like to live in China under an authoritarian government where they can limit, you know, everything that we say or do. But my response was that this is actually such a clear demonstration of the amazing freedoms that we have in this country, the amazing protection of the First Amendment and the freedom of speech, the fact that a private company can remove a sitting president against his will, whether you agree that was the right decision or not in this particular case, It really is just amazing. And we should take a moment to appreciate what a privilege it is that we live in a country where a company can do that lawfully. It's the opposite of living in a place where the government chooses what you see and what you hear and where the government controls the communication and the media and You know, they would never in a million years let a company block the president from saying what uh, he or she wanted to say. And so I really do think there's a healthy debate to have here, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it, it really is a true testament to the freedom that we have in this country to speak out against the government, to censor the government at our will. Okay. So that was way longer uh, and more intense than a normal tech headline. But like I said, we picked a hell of a week to kick things off. I almost feel like it's not even worth mentioning the other things that happened in tech this week because honestly, it's like, who cares? But here is a quick 15 second ad from our sponsor, Bounce House. And then we'll be back with some more run of the mill tech news. Bounce House is an e-commerce platform for small service based businesses. Think like personal trainer or yoga instructor, nutritionist. Bounce House is giving away a thousand free licenses to businesses affected by the pandemic at bounce.house. Again, that's bounce.house. Bounce House, sell your service online. All right, let's get into some more tech news. DALI is the latest release from OpenAI. It's a service that generates images from text. OpenAI is what Elon Musk does for fun. It's his research firm created 
to make sure that the development of generalized artificial intelligence doesn't end humanity. That is its stated mission. By the way, Elon Musk became the richest person in the world this week, surpassing Jeff Bezos with a net worth somewhere north of $200 billion. Boom. Bonus tech headline. So a few months back, OpenAI released GPT-3, which is an AI that can generate text often indistinguishable from a human's writing, including even poetry or writing code in different programming languages. So Dolly is... Uh, the name, by the way, is a mashup of Salvador Dali and Pixar's WALL-E. It's like GPT-3's cousin. You type something in and it generates an image for you. So here are some examples from their website. You should definitely Google this and check it out. Uh, they type in an armchair in the shape of an avocado. And you have these like really postmodern looking chairs that are green and shaped like avocados that don't exist. These things don't exist in the real world. It can generate a, a, an image of anything. Another one is an illustration of a baby daikon radish in a tutu walking a dog. And so not only is there uh, multiple pictures on the example website of a baby daikon radish in a tutu walking a dog, but it's illustrated. So rather than being photorealistic, these look more like hand-drawn illustrations. It's really insane that um, now you have something where you can type or presumably even, you know, speak into, into a microphone like Alexa style, you know, create a photo of whatever and it will generate it for you. And it's indistinguishable from something that looks real. You know, there's a bunch of implications here. First of all, designers and photographers are going to be out of the job if you can just have a picture or an illustration uh, of anything generated on the fly. But also it's a deeper trend around digital goods and services and particularly with AI, the commoditization of everything. So things that used to cost money, like paying someone to create art or to take a photo you don't need to pay for that anymore. The price drops close to zero and that could have profound implications. The other thing here is around, um, you know, fake news or whatever you want to call it. There's going to start to be a lot of images online that just never happen. It's like everybody has access to Photoshop. You know, you could just instruct it. I want a picture of this politician doing this with this celebrity and boom, you have multiple photos from multiple angles in multiple locations. You can think about this. It's almost inevitable that OpenAI's next project is going to be video and generating. And it's just going to be harder and harder to understand what is real and what's not real. Something I've been following for a long time um, and its implications on all sorts of things. So that's sort of a theme that I expect us to keep following, uh, having to do with augmented reality, virtual reality, and machine learning and AI. Pretty wild stuff. Okay, on to our next headline. Apple Car lives. Bloomberg reports that Apple is still in active development on an automobile. Although it's still probably at least five years away from being ready, this initiative, which internally is referred to as Project Titan, like the secret code name, this was rumored a few years ago, and then it was thought that they had kind of shut down Project Titan and decided not to do it. Apparently, it's alive and well, and it's being led by John Giandria, 
who is Apple's SVP of machine learning and AI strategy, who is one of the few execs, by the way, that reports directly to Apple CEO Tim Cook. Apple snagged him from Google a couple years ago, where he was in charge of machine learning and AI stuff at Google, as well as being in charge of Google search. So think about taking the guy who's literally in charge of Google search and AI at Google and bringing him to Apple and being like, hmm, what should he work on? Oh, okay, the most important thing that we're doing. Uh, And that gives you an idea of where they're sort of placing their bets as far as Project Titan. Now, what does it mean for Apple to produce a car? You know, Apple is hardly ever the first to market. You know, think about the iPod. MP3 players had been around for a long time. Even iPhone, there were many other phones that connected to the internet in different ways. Uh, but they really invented the category of the modern smartphone. And so they're not just going to build some Tesla competitor or something like uh, people are writing about. If Apple enters the car market, it's going to be with something really, really new and really, really different and really amazing that anticipates all sorts of user needs that we didn't know we had. So this is still a bit of a ways off, but exciting to hear that that is still in the works. I wonder by then if anyone is even going to like buy cars anymore because we'll all just be Ubering or electric scooting around, but I guess we'll find out. A deal for Visa to acquire fintech startup Plaid for reported $5.3 billion has fallen through. Plaid is a really exciting startup that I've been following for a few years. Long story short, they make accessing different banking information incredibly easy with a set of APIs that allow developers to build other sorts of products uh, to interface with various banks, which, you know, historically those banks are have sort of antiquated systems and are hard to access and hard to standardize. Plaid sort of standardizes the whole thing, so it's really easy to plug into the banking backends across all of those uh, major banks. So seems like a natural target for a company like Visa to acquire, but the Department of Justice blocked it, citing that it would, quote, eliminate a nascent competitive threat that would likely result in substantial savings and more innovative online debit services for merchants and consumers. Now, at some point, I think they were contesting the DOJ block and they're going back and forth, but I guess they've decided basically just not to pursue it at all and just to continue as an independent company. So... I think a few things going on here. You know, the government is definitely in an anti-trusty kind of mood uh, with technology companies in particular. And so probably a hard time to get something like this done since they're, you know, sort of um, preemptively avoiding antitrust as opposed to uh, post facto, which, you know, a lot of the big tech companies are now under scrutiny for antitrust, uh, but sort of after things like an example would be Google buying YouTube or uh, Facebook buying Instagram. Like those things already happened 10, 15 years ago. And now they're saying maybe shouldn't have. One thing I think is interesting about this finding is the language around savings for merchants and consumers. You know, existing antitrust and monopoly laws often cite uh, harm to consumers. And it's easier to make the case when there is a clear cost savings, when it's easy to demonstrate those savings. Unlike, for instance, a social media platform where it's free, you know, they might say lack of competition drives up the price. But of course, with social media, the price is zero to the consumer anyway, although maybe you can make the argument for the advertisers that competition 
would help drive down the price and lack of competition drives up the price. But um, with something like this, it's easier to sort of make the case from the government's perspective based on the existing laws. And I'm seeing a lot of hot takes from VCs, et cetera. Uh, you know, this is kind of throwing cold water on fintech, uh, financial tech as a whole sector, a whole category. I think it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and I think a true VC would hope that a company like Plaid would not be acquired by Visa, uh, even at this you know $5 billion price point. And that instead they could go on to grow and uh, eventually have an IPO and become a giant public company that really could compete with Visa. And ultimately that would uh, be a much better outcome for VC investors and the founders and other shareholders, as well as maybe better for, again, the market, uh, both on the consumer and merchant side. So interesting to see, but probably in this case, the DOJ might be right. And uh, we might actually see some more competition. See, wasn't that nice just to hear about like normal tech stuff? Anyway, I know I said that these episodes were going to be, you know, around 10 or 15 minutes. This one is clocking in a lot longer. I do not think that most episodes are going to be like this, but um, I think these topics are really important to discuss and to analyze. And uh, we're living in crazy times and technology and the internet is so integral to society as a whole, it's really hard to even sort of pick apart and talk about quote unquote normal tech. Tech just is part of the fabric of our culture and um, there's really no going back from there. I'd like to end the show by saying thanks for listening to this very first episode of Tech News for MBAs. I hope you and your loved ones are doing all right with all the various flavors of madness happening in the world. There are no credits per se for this show since it's a one-man operation, um, but I would appreciate if you could do one or more of the following. Subscribe, leave a review, or tell a friend. I'm Professor Paul Canetti. I'll see you next week for more tech news for MBAs.